Hello and welcome to this month's instalment of the A to Z of Doctor Who, which this month is brought to you by the letter H. I'm your host, Ian Martin. Hello. Um, Join me now, if you will, for some more of my um, loving and devoted tribute to Doctor Who. H. Hostile Action Displacement System, or HADS. Let's be honest here. If the TARDIS was really fitted with a hostile action displacement system that means it won't land anywhere dangerous and it hides itself at the first sign of trouble, then the Doctor and his trusty crew would never have actually landed anywhere, would they? Given that the crew are captured, shot at or stumble across a murdered corpse within around 200 yards of every place they ever land, it's far more plausible to suppose that the TARDIS has a circuit that in fact guarantees it always lands in the worst, most dangerous and violent place imaginable. But then I suppose every episode would be set in Glasgow, wouldn't it? Hand of Omega An artefact from Old High Gallifrey, the Hand of Omega was a remote stellar manipulator, a device used by the Time Lords to customise stars with. You want a four-storey, dual-aspect star with a view of the seafront at Chroma? No problem. The device was half-inched by the First Doctor when he fled Gallifrey and left on Earth as part of a trap for the Daleks, even though he hadn't met them yet or had any reason to want to destroy them. Still, the Daleks arrived in Shoreditch looking for the device, and the Seventh Doctor was on hand to eat bacon sandwiches and let the evil pepper pots from Scarrow steal the weapon. Turns out it was all a massive deception, and when Davros opened his present, it promptly flew to Scarrow, turned its son supernova, and destroyed the Dalek homeworld. This must have made Davros look like a right tid. After a vote of no confidence in Davros, the creator of the Daleks moved to a backbench role and spent decades rebuilding his political capital. A second chance was granted to him to execute one of his plans, and this time his idea to capture the Doctor and steal his regenerative power was only foiled when the sewers of Scaro exploded, covering both him and all the Daleks in sentient effluence. Proof that the Daleks always have had shit for brains. Harriet Jones, Prime Minister and MP for Flydale North. Yes, we know who you are. Hartnell, William. The actor William Hartnell was almost 90 years old when he got the part of The Doctor in 1963 and threw himself fully into the role by hating children and being generally awful to work with. It says here. His original interpretation of the Doctor was of a mysterious, irascible old man with a mane of white hair whose favourite period of history was the French Revolution, who smoked like a chimney and who enjoyed nothing so much as bashing in the heads of unsuspecting cavemen with big rocks. As the show became a massive television hit, thanks in almost every conceivable way to the success of the Daleks, Hartnell bedded in for the long haul, even though it eventually became clear he was no longer fit enough for the rigours of the weekly recording schedule. Learning lines grew increasingly difficult for the actor, who would mangle his dialogue in the studio to piss off everyone else, who then had to improvise wildly. Early companion Ian Chesterton was variously referred to as Chesterton, Chesterfield and Chessington World of Adventure, and after he left it was open season on companions' names, planet names, exposition and so on. After the mercifully lost Tenth Planet, Episode 1, where Hartnell strides from the TARDIS and introduces himself as I'm Doctor What? Hmm. Who? F***! 
BBC bosses took urgent steps to replace him as quickly as possible. They opted to recast the Doctor with a looky-likey in the hope that no one would notice. But the closest look they could get was Patrick Troughton. So they were forced to make up some nebulous guff about renewal, thus accidentally giving the programme unlimited longevity by creating a lead role that could be recast over and over again. Hartnell returned for the Three Doctors in 1970-something, when his Doctor was portrayed as a confused old man on a toilet, awkwardly speaking lines from an autocue into a camera. Most people will tell you that we wouldn't have Doctor Who as we know it today without William Hartnell, and that we owe him a lot. Fortunately, this doesn't mean we actually have to watch any of his stories, though, because they were bloody boring. Hath the... Stupid fish-headed monsters from the worst episode of Doctor Who ever, The Doctor's Daughter. Researching them would entail watching The Doctor's Daughter again, and frankly there are some sacrifices I'm not prepared to make. So, from memory, they're a race of peace-loving, gentle men with the heads of fish, who have to walk around with goldfish bowls on their heads to keep themselves immersed in water. I'm pretty sure Martha fell in love with one of them, and, and part of me even dimly remembers that this aquatic life form went on to drown but that can't be true because that would just be laughable. They've cropped up as extras and background aliens a couple of times in their, uh, since their one story, but let's hope we don't see these lugubrious pilchards ever again. Hath-nots, the... The opposite of the Hath, the Hath-nots, have human heads, but sadly growing out of the bodies of normal-sized goldfish. This lot couldn't even invade a branch of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Heaven-sent, hell-bent... Two directorially brilliant episodes which closed PCAP's second run of Doctor Who stories in, I thought, an unsatisfactory way. Heaven Sent saw the baffled Doctor blundering about wearily in a nonsensical realm where nothing made sense. An homage, if you will, to a famous occasion when Tom Baker woke up with a staggering hangover while on location in a quarry-side bed-and-breakfast in Sussex and proceeded to trash the place. Then the Doctor gets out of the confession dial by... Uh, <clears throat> punching his way through a wall of solid diamond over millions of years, which is how eager consumers have to gain ingress to high-fashion emporia at the post-Ramadan sales in the Dubai Mall. Suddenly, after all these millions of years, the Doctor is back on his ancestral home, the long-lost world he's been looking for for so, so long. And then... uh, And then... So if the Doctor has been desperately searching for Gallifrey ever since the day of the Doctor, why did he do so little when he eventually got there? All he did was shout a bit at Rassilon, hide in an old shed for a while, then swiftly escape in an old Type 40 TARDIS to resume his life of abducting pretty young women from their time streams. Yeah, no, actually that works. Helmic Regulator Am I the only person who thinks this sounds a bit rude? Holloway, Dr Grace. Whenever I'm asked which Doctor Who companion I'd most like to get off with, Grace Holloway from 1996's Doctor Who TV movie entitled Doctor Who the Television Movie is always there as an unexpected and slightly outré suggestion because you can only talk about episode one of Planet of Fire for so long. Oh, Turlo. Human Nature. One of the finest Virgin New Adventure novels, and if, like me, you choose to accept these as part of the canon, then this is the only adventure the Doctor has had twice. Well, I say that, but most of those Terry Nation Dalek tales were pretty similar, weren't they? (laughs) And there's only one story you can really do with the Silurians.
and and the Cybermen. Um, yeah. Hungry Earth. Currently being overanalyzed by Who fans keen to triangulate where writer Chris Chibnall might take the show when he becomes showrunner. Uh, if this story is any indication, we're in for a sort of homage to the Pertwee era, where the effects and costumes look great, but the adventures are duller than watching paint dry. Once again, the Silurians awake from their luxurious lion, only to end up in unsuccessful negotiations with humanity to share the planet they technically have first dibs on. It's interesting that in Moffat's era, humanity is able to make peace and share the world with a few Zygons, who are technically political refugees and asylum seekers, but they won't share it with the Silurians, who were, after all, here first. These are interesting questions about race, about sharing, about who has the right to live and work where. I put these questions to the outgoing UKIP leader, Nigel Farage, but he told me to piss off. Hurt, John. Sir John Vincent Hurt was born in 1940 and only became famous when he portrayed the Ninth Doctor, known as the War Doctor, in the 50th anniversary special Doctor Who and the Day of the um, Daleks. Following on from his forerunner, William Hartnell, John Hurt's War Doctor was best remembered as a confused old man who people were inexplicably frightened of, in particular future incarnations David Tennant and Matt Smith, or Ten and Eleven, if you want to be vulgar. The War Doctor's list of evil deeds included using his TARDIS to smash through walls and sort of benevolent, twinkly stuff. He was supposed to have originally destroyed Gallifrey to end the Time War until 10 and 11 went back in time to stop him doing this because it was, after all, a bit much. How we'd all love to be able to nip back in time to stop our younger selves doing embarrassing things. I myself might go back in time to when I was five or so and I'd been abandoned at an organised football match at a holiday camp. I hated football and knew none of the rules. So after kicking a free kick in the wrong direction, I was shouted at by the surly bluecoat who'd been left with the task of refereeing. And I ran away crying from the humiliation. I'd erased that. Actually, thinking about it, if I could go back and edit my life with time travel, it's more a question of which bits would I keep in. Uh, I digress. Hertz Doctor wore a battered old leather jacket, which regenerated into a newer, less battered leather jacket when Hurt, or Nine, regenerated into Christopher Eccleston, also confusingly known as Nine. God, Moffat has made it so confusing. You know what he should have done, thinking about it? He should have put the War Doctor incarnation in between Troughton and Pertwee, because we never actually saw that regeneration. Um, and it would have fitted in with the whole Season 6B theory, and it would explain why Pertwee's first act was to stumble from the TARDIS, looking aghast, then just pass out in a devastated heap, which most of us just put down to a heavy night of welcome drinks in the BBC bar the night before.